0: Well for the benefit of those of you who are joining us today, great to have you here, you're very welcome. Uh, Since July we've been reading through Matthew's Gospel together here at Kings. Matthew's Gospel is basically an eyewitness account of Jesus's life, and especially the last three years or so of it. And what we've been seeing, uh, particularly over these last few weeks, is that Matthew writing his Gospel, has been very eager to tell us about the authority of Jesus. Chapters 5 to 8 explicitly mention the note of authority in what Jesus says, his authority over disease and sickness, over nature itself, and over, as we saw last week, the dark realm of the occult. And Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is no ordinary man. And as we step today into chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel, he's going to tell us about the authority and dominion of Christ extending over yet one more domain. So let's read it together. We're reading chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. Jesus stepped into a boat... Crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why? do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralysed man, get up, take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples when the pharisees saw this they asked his disciples why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners on hearing this jesus said it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick but go and learn what this means i desire mercy not sacrifice for i have come to call, not come to call the righteous but sinners Well, I've got just two points this morning. Number one, get up, and number two, follow me, meaning, of course, not me, but follow Jesus. And the first story we read about this morning tells us that Jesus has authority over sin. Now what do I mean by that word sin? Well, I once had a computer that started to run slowly and then crash unexpectedly, and it got more and more unstable. And I was told, an expert came in and had a look at it, I was told that the software on my computer was infected with a virus, and it had to be dealt with before it could operate efficiently again. And this is what sin is like. See, a computer virus makes everything go wrong. And sin is everything we do and say that falls short of God's perfect version of us, and it just makes everything in life go wrong. But Jesus is, if you like, he's like antivirus for people. He has what it takes to say to someone, "Your sins are all forgiven." It is a factory reset and now you can function well again. The problem in Jesus' day is that the powers that be make it quite clear that in their view, Jesus does not have the right to do this. And this, for them, is a huge problem that's going to land Jesus in big trouble. We're going to see that increasingly as we travel on in Matthew's Gospel. Well, imagine you and I walk into a Category A prison in the UK, like Franklin or Belmarsh. Those places are high-security institutions. They're populated by people doing time for murder and firearms offences, uh, violent robbery, terrorist attacks, rape and drug Trafficking, that sort of thing. And imagine you go in and you say to the inmates there, one by one, You're not guilty anymore. Your conviction has been quashed. Your life sentence is cancelled. And I am granting you today an unconditional pardon and immediate release. So come this way with me to collect your belongings. You are free to go. What would the governor and prison officers? say about that? Well, I know exactly what they'd say. And it's not the sort of vocabulary you hear in church very often. Because it's not in your gift. It's not in my gift to bestow a royal pardon on anybody. We haven't got the power to do that. It would be outrageous, wouldn't it? It would be dangerous if uh, criminals like the ones I've just mentioned were allowed to walk free just because you and I said they could. And this is precisely what the highly qualified religious leaders of Jesus' day think about him saying to people, your sins are all forgiven. See, Jesus, he's got no proper qualifications. He never went to theological college. He hasn't got a doctorate in theology. But Matthew's point is that he does not need all that. In verse 8 in our passage today, people marvel not at the prestigious university on his CV, not on the many letters after his name. They are awed by his authority. He has what it takes to change lives. And that is what people want. Well, the teachers of the law watch Jesus forgive the sins of this paralysed man and they say, hang on a bit, wait, wait, hang on. He says he can forgive sins. How can that be right? Only God can do that. Who does this nobody from Nazareth take himself for? And then Jesus heals the paraplegic, who then slowly gets to his feet and he walks off with his mat and people say, oh, oh, okay then. Isn't it sad, indeed tragic, that instead of applauding what Jesus does in this poor man's life, the religious people criticise it and they find fault with it. Unfortunately, cynicism and jealousy are common, all too common in religious circles, even today. See, these teachers of the law have the attitude, we're good, you're bad. We're the teachers of the law, you're the learners of the law. You have the needs, We have all the solutions. You have the questions. We have got the answers. We are literally holier than thou. And notice, these guys, they don't come in with an open mind. They're not curious. They're not inquisitive, wanting to learn. Like many people in our society today, religious or otherwise, you meet them every day. They've already made up their minds and they've shut their hearts. They're totally unreceptive to the idea that their views about Jesus might be wrong. Have you perhaps closed your mind? Did those testimonies uh, before the baptisms today make you wonder? What would it take for you to reconsider? I heard about a Christian atheist debate this week where at one point the Christian asked, if I could prove to you that Christianity was true, would you become a Christian? And the answer was no. See, Jesus doesn't let prejudice and narrow-mindedness set the agenda. He just focuses on the need of the person before him. He says, take heart, verse 2, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. No other religious leader in the entire history of the human race ever said that. Buddha didn't. Krishna didn't. Muhammad didn't. Nor does the Dalai Lama or the chief rabbi today. Other religious figures tend to say things like this. You need to bathe in this secret riv- sacred river. You need to sacrifice this animal. You've got to visit our holy shrine you must fast every day for a month or cover your head or get reincarnated and, until you purge your soul or something. Somehow you've got to make yourself good enough to earn it. That's what religious, religious leaders say. But Jesus just says, you are forgiven because I say so. That is what we call grace. Being forgiven and welcomed into God's family is just so simple, really. To become a Christian and get your past record wiped clean, whatever it is you've done, however often you've done it, it's almost ludicrously straightforward. There's no need for any elaborate ceremony. There's no religious palaver necessary. No longer with long-winded litany you got to say no prolonged self-flagellation no heroic self-sacrifice no intensive study program you got to do no weighing your good deeds against your bad deeds in the hope that the one will outweigh the other there's no requirement to go off and slay dragons there's no sweating for centuries in purgatory we just come to jesus as we are, empty-handed, and when we do, we find that he has already turned towards us. And it's done. And it's free. And even then, there's no long, nervous, agonising wait while God goes off to consider his verdict about us. His mercy is instant. Whenever you feel dirty and guilty and ashamed and defiled, you can go to Jesus in simple faith and he will make you new again. In fact, so new, Jesus calls it being born again. There actually is a new you. And that's what the guys who are baptised today are so excited about. Jesus says to this man, get up, stand up. And this is a visible, physical, outward response to what God has just done inwardly in his heart. And that's exactly what the two who were baptised today have done. Something visible, external, to show what has gone on internally in their lives. Is it perhaps time for you to stand up and be counted. Well, as Jesus goes on from there, Matthew writes about an encounter that changes his life forever. And we're in Capernaum now. This is Jesus' adopted hometown. Matthew, verse 9, is the man in charge of the inland revenue booth there. And people have to line up and uh, pay their poll tax to him. How do you get to be... A taxman in Jesus's day. Well, it's like this you basically put in a bid to the Roman authorities, and the contract goes to the highest bidder. Yes, you actually pay for the privilege of being the most unpopular person in town, but you recoup your investment in no time at all because you work on commission and you get rich quick by ripping people off for more than they actually owe. It's a racket. It's naked corruption. Everybody knows it. But Rome doesn't care. As long as Caesar gets his money, they aren't bothered at all. And so here they are, people queue up to pay their tax to Matthew in his booth. And they hate him. Because their hard-earned money pays for all Rome's squalid excesses. Caesar's drunken orgies and pagan entertainment, it's all funded by their taxes. And that's why tax collectors are all shunned as traitors and automatically excommunicated from the synagogue. Even their families disown them. Well, there's little doubt that Matthew will have heard about Jesus before. Jesus has already done sensational things in this area, as we saw in chapters 4 and 8. And word will no doubt have got around already. Nevertheless, what happens next is totally out of the blue. Nobody expects it at all. Jesus walks by, he stops. He turns and he looks at this wretched, money-grabbing rat bag. And he says, Matthew, come with me. Now verse 9 could say that Jesus asked him or Jesus invited him. But it doesn't. It says Jesus told Matthew to follow him. See, this is no polite suggestion. It's a summons. And yet another proof right there of Jesus' authority. His authority. Did you know that God loved you long before you ever even thought about him? See, it's not that people just decide one day to get up and follow Jesus. As if it all depends on our initiative. That's what it feels like to us. But the truth is that behind the scenes, before we were even half aware of any spiritual reality out there at all, God already knew us and he loved us and he was drawing us to himself and giving us a gift of faith. Of course, of ourselves, we are totally unable to respond to God. Without the grace of God, we are spiritually lost Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 say this, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God not by your own efforts so that nobody can brag about it. And so Matthew gets up and he leaves his tax ledger and his piles of coins and all that was once so important to him, the wealth and the power and the bodyguards and the luxurious lifestyle, that's over. His security guy, this guy in his military uniform is saying, where do you think you're going? What about all these people in the queue? But Matthew doesn't even hear him. He hands in his keys. He doesn't even know for sure where this is going to lead. He just knows there can be no going back now. Have you ever walked away from an old way of life to follow Jesus? If you haven't, you should. See, nothing is more exhilarating, more freeing, more thrillingly audacious in life than that. Well, the next scene is at Matthew's house. And probably, given his wealth, it's a prestigious mansion in the posh end of town. Matthew has been with Jesus for just a few hours or maybe a couple of days. But already, he is learning that following Jesus means accepting his agenda from now on. And Jesus says, Matthew, we're having a party. And congratulations, pal, you're hosting tonight. That's quite a big deal for Matthew. He's got to tidy up his place. He's got to get it ready for all these guests. He's not used to doing this. He's hardly got any friends, remember? Because of his job. And then he has to go out and he has to buy food, he has to buy drinks, he has to buy napkins and all that. And then he has to put up with people coming into his pad and spilling red wine all over his nice Persian carpet. Some idiots spilling oily hummus on his expensive sofa. Someone else neglects to flush the toilet. Verse 10 says, Many tax collectors and sinners were there. Many. There's a whole crowd of them. Some are blacklisted like Matthew and the other tax gatherers. Others are just people who live a notorious lifestyle. It's a pretty motley crowd in his house. The one thing they all have in common is this. They're all excluded from the synagogue. But Jesus just breaks all the rules. And he goes out of his way to mix with some pretty colourful people here. There's cool girls and alcoholics, petty thieves, lap dancers, pimps, pickpockets. Some of them need to go a little bit easier on the chateau neuf de pape Some dodgy looking teenagers in the living room helping themselves to some of Matthew's nice marble ornaments. It's messy. But things often get messy when Jesus is about. It's never boring, that's for sure. But it seems that Matthew is all in. This is his new way of life. Matthew welcomes everybody into his place with all their chaos, all their bother, all their noise. And he says, come in, make yourself at home here. Come and meet Jesus. This is going to change your life. And that is how lives do get changed. This is how God works. But some people, we read, are outraged and offended. See, the establishment just don't get it. They turn up and they say to Jesus, why are you associating with the riffraff? You're supposed to be a man of God. We think it gives the wrong impression. And there's Jesus (laughs) completely at ease and not because he moves to the level of sinners and affirms their godless way of life but because at last they see in him a way out of the mess they've made of their lives and notice this is really telling the people criticizing jesus don't think they're sinners in verse 11 it's It's this, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, sinners, for them, means other people. And whenever people go all religious, they start to think that other people are worse than them, holier than thou. And interestingly here, Jesus doesn't actually disagree that these messed up people have issues. They do have sin in their lives and Jesus does not make excuses for it or play it down or make light of it. In fact, he actually concurs with the religious Pharisees. Yes, these people do need a doctor. Definitely. I agree with you. Yes, they really do have a lot of brokenness, a lot of disorder, a lot of chaos in their lives. But don't you Pharisees as well. Jesus says in verse 12, it's not healthy people who need a doctor but the sick I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. I did not come here to run a holy club for the respectable And the upstanding. I came here to heal broken hearts. To mend broken lives. And restore broken families. And rebuild broken communities. That's why Jesus came. And the bottom line is this. When you read through the Gospels. This is what you find. Jesus goes to the religious people. Pharisees. Teachers of the law. And he loves them. And he tells them the truth about who they are. And they reply, how dare you? And they hate him and they try to trap him and they argue with him and they plot against him and they go on to arrest him and fix his trial and in the end, they get him crucified. And Jesus goes to the messed up people too. The loose women, the drunkards, the tax collectors, the petty criminals. And he loves them too. And he tells them the truth about who they are as well. And they say, do you know what? You're right. Our lives are a wreck. How are we ever going to get out of this mess? We, we need to change, but we just never seem to be able to do it. Is there anything that can be done? Is there anyone can help? Can you help? You can? Great, they say. And Jesus brings transformation every time well as i end two expressions get up it's a command follow me it's a challenge and in the same way that jesus said to the man in the story get up some of you want to get up out of your chair this morning and make a response to jesus Maybe this is going to be for the first time ever. And as Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. He says it to us as well this morning. Some of you have begun to do that already. And perhaps some of you have begun to hesitate a little bit. Well, whatever's holding you back, leave it all behind this morning. Because today Jesus offers you a totally brand new start. He offers it to everyone who comes to him and asks for it. So let's stand now to pray and respond.